Chapter 16, Part 2 of Woman's Suffrage and Politics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Woman's Suffrage and Politics, The Inner Story of the Suffrage Movement, by Carrie Chapman Catt and Nettie Rogers Schuler. Woman's Suffrage by Federal Amendment. Part 2 in 1912, there were three candidates for the presidency from the Republican ranks. They were Mr. Taft, Mr. Roosevelt, and Mr. La Follette. All three were approached by the suffragists for the expression of an opinion on woman's suffrage. Mr. Taft answered, I don't think we ought to take as radical a step as that, without being certain that when we do, it will meet the approval of all those, or substantially all of those, in whose interest the franchise is extended, because if it does not meet their views, and they don't avail themselves of the opportunity to exercise the influence which that would give them, then we should be in a bad way, because we might lose a substantial proportion of the votes of those that would be for better things. Therefore, I am willing to wait until there shall be a substantial, not unanimous, but a substantial, call from that sex before the suffrage is extended. Mr. La Follette carried a suffrage plank in the platform upon which he proposed to stand. Mr. Roosevelt qualified his statement with so many reservations as to make it as useful for one side as the other. Amid great excitement and angry dispute over the seating of delegates, the Republican nomination was given to Mr. Taft by a vote of 561, Mr. Roosevelt receiving 107. The Roosevelt delegates, charging fraud in the seating of delegates, met immediately after the adjournment of the convention, and nominated Mr. Roosevelt for the presidency, thus bringing into organized form the movement that had been growing in and out of Congress for three years and called themselves the Progressive Party. A convention to adopt a platform was called for August. Meantime, the Democrats met in Baltimore June 25th to July 3rd and nominated Woodrow Wilson. He had replied to the National Suffrage Association's inquiry as follows. Allow me to acknowledge with real appreciation your letter in which you put me a very difficult question. I can only say that my own mind is in the midst of the debate which it involves. I do not feel that I am ready to utter my confident judgment as yet about it. I am honestly trying to work my way toward a just conclusion. Mr. Roosevelt is alleged to have written his own platform for the Progressive Convention in August. A group of supporters, paying him a visit, heard it and made loud protest against the suffrage plank it contained. That plank endorsed the principle of woman suffrage, but pledged the new party to a practical support only when the question had been submitted to a referendum of the women of the United States. His friends persuaded him of the insult of putting upon women a test never made of men, and a straightforward declaration was substituted. Quote, the Progressive Party, believing that no people can justly claim to be a true democracy which denies political rights on the account of sex, pledges itself to the task of securing equal suffrage to men and women alike. End quote. 
Many women attended the convention as delegates, several of the southern states being so represented, Jane Addams seconded Mr. Roosevelt's nomination. State progressive conventions followed in rapid succession, each endorsing the national platform. Women served on many state central committees, and very many were listed by the Speaker's Bureau. The great advantage of having the endorsement of a party in the field was quickly manifest. Mr. Roosevelt himself was no longer doubtful, and other men long silent, encouraged by the work women were doing for the progressive cause, boldly advocated woman suffrage. The elections of 1912 resulted in a sweeping Democratic victory by pluralities in so many states as to give that party's candidate the largest vote and largest majority in the Electoral College ever given a party candidate. Third Party Movements, Haynes Mr. Taft carried two states only, Mr. Roosevelt five. Congress was made Democratic, and the Republicans lost the legislatures of nine states. While the Democratic Party offered little encouragement to suffrage, the Republican machine was broken or out of repair in most of the states where campaigns were pending, and the strong attitude of the new minority party presented a warning to both old parties to treat the suffrage question with fairness. To emphasize this attitude, three more suffrage states were won in the 1912 election, and a controversy almost as effective, was aroused as to whether three more might not have been added to the suffrage list by an honest count. Inevitably, the new Congress showed far keener interest in the suffrage question. Six representatives insisted upon the privilege of introducing the usual resolution. The Democrats, in concession to changed conditions, gave the chairmanship of the Senate Suffrage Committee to one of their own party, Senator Charles S. Thomas of Colorado. The committee was favorable. In the Senate body, there were now 18 senators elected by constituencies, wherein both men and women voted. It was about this time that the suffrage struggle in America began to be complicated by the influence of earlier developments in the suffrage struggle in England. Since 1906, a militant campaign had been raging in Great Britain, with demonstrations manufactured by the women to bait the police, the consequent arrests of women duly enlisted to go to prison, followed by imprisonment with hard labor, hunger strikes, forcible feeding, and temporary releases for hospital treatment. This shocking story, daily repeated, had carried an important message to Americans. Many learned for the first time that women in Great Britain had long been voters, and only lacked the parliamentary vote to make their suffrage privileges equal to those of men. They learned that no parliamentary suffrage measure could pass unless it became part of the government program, and that Premier Asquith, supported by his cabinet, refused to grant that assistance. Women familiar with the home struggle in America perceived that the crux of the British and American suffrage problem was the same. A minority, holding control of a party, was checkmating the majority in that party who were willing to move forward. American men, seeing the injustice of British men, began to apply reason to the home attitude upon the same question. 
condemning the women who were deliberately creating the turmoil, and the politicians who met every seemingly ridiculous move of the women with one equally ridiculous, they nevertheless began to think. Although the militant movement had divided opinion in that country as in all others, it taught many suffragists the world around that spectacular events carried suffrage messages to the masses of people as suffrage appeals to reason never could and immediately such features shorn of militant character were introduced into state campaigns in america footnote mrs millicent garrett fawcett president of the national union of suffrage societies in great britain says it will ever be an open question on which different people with equal opportunities of forming a judgment will pronounce different verdicts whether militancy did more harm or good to the suffrage cause it certainly broke down the conspiracy of silence on the subject up to then observed by the press every extravagance every folly every violent expression etc were given the widest publicity not only in great britain but all over the world End footnote. many american suffragists including dr anna howard shaw then president of the national american woman suffrage association had marched in London suffrage parades, and were familiar with the helpful as well as the harmful effects of militant tactics. When, therefore, after the annual suffrage convention of November 1912, Miss Alice Paul, an American who had done prison duty in the English campaign, approached the National Suffrage Association, of which Dr. Shaw was the president, with a suggestion that she be permitted to organize a suffrage parade at the presidential inaugural in March 1913, and offered to raise the necessary funds. The board gladly accepted the offer, gave her the prestige of the chairmanship of its congressional committee, and provided her with stationery of the association and the list of its usual contributors. The Washington Suffrage Parade was organized with the assistance and cooperation of the entire National Suffrage Association. The preparations were well and elaborately made, and between eight and 10,000 women marched. Public interest can be measured by a press story that was carried to the far corners of the nation. Where, asked one of the incoming president's staff upon the arrival of the presidential party in Washington, where are all the people? Watching the suffrage parade, the police told him, as it fell out, the treatment given the parade proved of far more importance to woman suffrage than the parade itself. In the city, governed directly by Congress, the marching women were shockingly used. Women were spat upon, slapped in the face, tripped up, pelted with burning cigar stubs, and insulted by jeers and obscene language too vile to print or repeat. Rowdies seized and mauled young girls. A very gray-haired college woman was knocked down. The parade was continually stopped by the turbulence of the crowd. From Woman's Journal Assistance was called from Fort Myer, and soldiers brought to the rescue. The parade, however, was largely spoiled. The thousands of men and women who gathered on the sidewalks to see the much-advertised spectacle were robbed of a view of the novel floats and colorful costuming, but the failure of the police to maintain order and not the procession itself, gave the chief contribution to suffrage progress. Many senators and representatives, with wives and friends, marched in the procession and saw the treatment accorded the marchers. 
The Senate promptly voted an investigation, and the findings filled a volume. The press united in the declaration that Washington was disgraced, and as an outcome, the chief of police was dismissed. The dissemination of the news of these events, day after day, brought discussion on the subject of woman suffrage to every hamlet in the land. But more important than all else, it brought debate, live, earnest debate, to the cloakrooms of the Senate and House, where it flourished until the end. In December 1913, the annual suffrage convention met in Washington, and the delegates heard the report of its congressional committee with mingled feelings of satisfaction at the lively campaign that had been steadily conducted, and surprise over certain facts recorded. Much has been erroneously said and written concerning the breaking away of a smaller body of suffragists from the larger parent body which marked this period. Throughout the last years of the suffrage campaign, it was a daily feature of anti-suffrage tactics to scout the National Suffrage Association's oft-repeated assertions that all connection with the new organization had been severed, and to try to direct toward the parent body the antagonism aroused by the militant tactics of its offspring. Politicians, too, found it convenient to insist that all suffragists and all suffrage tactics were sub rosa of the same parent organization, and thereupon used the expedience of the militants as a smokescreen of excuse for opposition to the very principle of suffrage. The facts with regard to the dissociation of the small body of militants from the large body of non-militants in the American suffrage struggle were as follows. While officially connected with the National Suffrage Association, in charge of its congressional work, and writing on its stationery, the association's congressional chairman had created a new organization on the plan of the English Militant Society. The new group called itself the Congressional Union, and had launched a paper as its organ. Yet, the program of work and disbursements of the Committee of the National had been so interwoven with the work and disbursements of the new organization that the joint chairman of both declared that it was impossible to separate them. After due consideration, the board of the National Suffrage Association decided that it was inadvisable to reappoint Miss Paul chairman of the Congressional Committee, unless she resigned as chairman of the Congressional Union. The constant confusion of the Congressional Committee of the National American Woman Suffrage Association with the Congressional Union, an organized society, was making such action inevitable. But Miss Paul refused to accept these terms. It had long been predicted that a militant movement similar to that of Great Britain would be reproduced in the United States. Many suffragists hoped to avert this division by adopting the new methods which had helped and discarding those which had clearly harmed the movement. Many delegates to that suffrage convention in 1913 saw in the attitude of the chairman of the Congressional Committee a dark conspiracy to capture the entire national for the militant enterprise. Others recognized the inefficiency of disintegrated forces in the closing days of the long struggle and made earnest efforts to prevent a division by persuading the young militants to work under the old banner, but to no avail. The Congressional Committee of the National American Woman Suffrage Association was a standing committee, and thereafter the work went on with renewed energy under a new chairman. The Congressional Union also continued to work with Congress as an independent body, thus making two committees in Washington working for the same thing, but with no plan of cooperation from that time forth. 
The Congressional Committee opened a new headquarters in Washington and took a complete poll of Senate and House. The handicaps inevitable when two separate committees are trying to accomplish the same end were soon manifest. To illustrate, the revival of the movement to establish a suffrage standing committee in the House had been begun in 1913 with the approval of the Executive Board of the National Suffrage Association. Now came the Congressional Union with a petition to the Democrats to caucus on the subject. Vainly, the Congressional Committee sought to persuade the Union from thus aligning the Democrats against the project. Aligning the Democrats against the project was exactly what the Union wished to accomplish in order that the Democrats should be put on record as a party in opposition. The Union, following its English model, was preparing to hold the party in power responsible. In vain did the Committee expostulate that no party can be the government in this country as it is in Great Britain, since one party may conduct the national administration and the other control the Congress. One may control the entire national business, executive, and legislative, and the other many state legislatures. The Democrats were easily enough persuaded to caucus and not only voted against a standing committee on woman suffrage, but Mr. Heflin of Alabama amended the resolution before the caucus so that the members of the caucus were enabled to vote definitely that the woman suffrage question was one to be determined by the states and not by the national government. Report of National Congressional Chairman the three main differences of policy between the National Suffrage Association and its young offshoot, the Congressional Union, soon developed. The Congressional Union, one, opposed congressional candidates because they belonged to the party in power, regardless of their personal stand. Two, it opposed an entire party in power because some of its individual members of Congress were hostile to woman suffrage. Three, it used so-called militant methods, which the National did not endorse. In accord with this policy, it now announced its intention of campaigning against all Democratic candidates in the states where women were enfranchised. Meanwhile, the Congressional Committee, in full realization that the Senate would not give a majority, forced a vote on suffrage on March 19, 1914 resulting in a record of yeas 35, nays 34. Western Democrats were thus given the opportunity to make a public record of their individual attitudes. The year witnessed the proclamation of the 16th Amendment, the first in 43 years, authorizing the income tax, and the suffrage amendment lost the place its leaders had so anxiously hoped their amendment would fill. The suffrage amendment was thereafter, for a time, called the 17th. But when the 17th Amendment, dealing with the election of senators, was adopted, it became plain that the progress of suffrage in the Congress was too slow to hold a numerical place on the amendment schedule. So the suffrage amendment was thereafter called the Federal Suffrage Amendment by the National Suffrage Association. Shortly after the Senate vote, a bomb was thrown into the National Suffrage Camp by its own Congressional Committee. The poll of the Senate indicated that not only foes, but many friends of suffrage were insisting that the question was one that the state should settle, and the chairman of the Congressional Committee, assisted by her co-workers, conceived a plan to meet this objection. State workers were complaining that they could not secure referenda from legislatures, 
and could not win them when submitted if a majority of votes cast at the election were required. So a new amendment was drawn up, proposing that when an initiative petition, signed by 8% of the electors voting at the preceding general election, should request the submission of the question of woman suffrage, such question should be submitted, and a majority on the question should be sufficient for its adoption. The object was to increase the number of suffrage states, and the measure was intended by its authors as a support to the pending federal suffrage amendment. The National Suffrage Board reluctantly permitted its introduction, although when Dr. Shaw retired from the presidency, she announced that she had never approved it. The amendment was introduced in the Senate by Senator Shafroth of Colorado and in the House by Representative Palmer of Pennsylvania and was promptly voted out of the committees to which it had been reported. It bore influentially on the annual suffrage convention in November 1914, where it was voted that every means within the National Suffrage Association's power, in the future as in the past, should be used to further the federal suffrage amendment and, such other legislation as the National Board may authorize and initiate, in support of that amendment. At the mid-year conference of the National American Woman Suffrage Association in June 1915, a motion to drop work on the so-called Shafroth Amendment was defeated. 21 ayes, 57 nays. Misunderstanding and confusion in the ranks occasioned by the charge of the Congressional Union that the National Suffrage Association had substituted a referendum amendment for that which it had been supporting for a generation, the clamor within and without the National Suffrage Association for repudiation of the anti-democratic policy of the Union, continual complaint from campaign states that Union sympathizers were pulling off workers because there was an easier way, brought a complexity of troublesome problems which tremendously increased the strain of suffrage leaders and workers. The Shafroth Amendment was withdrawn just in time to prevent a definite split in the National Suffrage Association. Many suffragists believed that while it had precipitated an agony of differences, on the whole the proposal had been good interim strategy, for the arguments for and against had served to bring the question of suffrage by federal amendment still more prominently to the front. Moreover, state suffrage auxiliaries had been solidified in their allegiance to the National Suffrage Association's policy by the agitation. The campaigns against Democrats waged by the Union in the West aroused the antagonism of voters in the Eastern state campaigns, and many Democrats excused themselves for voting no at the polls because women voters in the West were being urged to oppose Democratic candidates. Workers in all referenda campaigns were convinced that this influence swelled the opposition to a considerable degree. On the other hand, the campaign of the Union did not suffice to put the party in power out. Instead of the 18 Democrats from the suffrage states in the 1913-1914 Congress, there were 19 in the 1915-1916 Congress. That Congress was reopened in an irritated state of mind. All Republicans and Democrats in Senate or House were outspoken in their condemnation of the party responsible plan, and the National Suffrage Association's Congressional Committee was obliged to soothe before attempting to persuade. But the campaign in Washington went vigorously forward, hearings, interviews, and home pressure forming the main aims. 
the chairman of the judiciary was determined that the amendment should not come to vote in the House. The Democrats caucused and determined to prevent a vote. Nevertheless, the question was at length brought to vote by Representative Mondell of Wyoming on January 12, 1915. After a 10 hours debate, and resulted in 174 ayes and 204 noes. 86 Democrats and 88 Republicans and Progressives voted yes. 171 Democrats and 33 Republicans voted no. Meanwhile, the state campaigns were whirl with activities undreamt of in earlier days. November recorded the defeat of the suffrage referenda in four eastern states, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. But the fact that 1,234,000 eastern men had voted yes was not overlooked by the Congress. Then, too, by that hour, the great and terrible agency, which brought about the downfall of much of the old social and political order, and made way for much that was new, was having a tremendous effect on woman suffrage by revolutionizing the whole sphere of women. That agency was the World War. From overseas the news kept coming that women, as always in wartime, were taking the places of men on farms and in factories. But more than that now, they were doing the work in munitions plants, running the railways, keeping the post offices, and managing hospitals. The National American Woman Suffrage Association allowed no congressman or legislator to remain in ignorance of these facts, should he overlook them in the press. He was reminded of them in conversation, at dinners, and on tennis courts. They were handed to him in typewriting, sent him through the mails, and told him by his fellow members in the cloakrooms. They were to prove a salient part of the education of the American Congress on the subject of the American woman's sphere. End of chapter 16, part 2